Welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Ron Hammonds, Senior Pastor at Golden Triangle Church on the Rock in Beaumont, Texas. For more information about Church on the Rock and Ron Hammonds Ministries, visit cotr.com. Are you ready for the Word? Oh, are you sure you're ready for the Word? Oh, just wait until you hear this, uh, the, 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 the sermon title tonight. I'm not putting it up front. I'm going to bring it in a little bit later just because I don't want, you know, to give some of you to, you know, jump and run or go to sleep or something. So uh, <laughs> let me tell you, God has a big job. Do you know what? The only thing God ever wanted to be was a father, and the only thing God's working for is family. And, and uh, if you've been around very long, you know that family's a big job. Family's tough. One of the toughest things about family is keeping them together. One of the toughest things about family is keeping them, you know, uh, loving one another in unity and harmony and all going the same direction, you know, all loving God and all loving God at the same, you know, uh, uh, pace, <laughs> all loving God and respecting one another and uh, keeping, keeping families and communities and churches and, and uh, uh, all the other things that require participation, joint participation, keeping those things together, keeping a nation together, going in one direction without it, you know, uh, being divided and splitting. You know, it, it is not an easy job. There's, you know, it is, imagine keeping the universe together, keeping the world together. Imagine God's job trying to keep the, the Catholics and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Pentecostals all together as one family. Can you imagine God's job? You know, uh, we think we have a difficult job. Imagine what God has, all right? And so, uh, you know, God has given us such a wealth of wisdom from his word. And, and uh, uh, you know, he's, he's given us a wealth of wisdom for our lives. He's given us a whole storehouse of wisdom in his word. And I've always been amazed at the preemptive strategy of God. In that God, if we are willing to listen, if we're willing to put our ear uh, and, and listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to the church, if we're willing to do that, God always gives us a preemptive strategy. He tells us about problems before they happen. He tells us, he, he says, I will tell you of things before they come to pass. He will help us to look a little farther down the road. God wants us to always be prepared for the trouble or the problems or the temptations or the tests or the trials which are to come. I am glad that it's not just all about going to God after I have a problem, but I'm telling you that most often I experience God speaking to me. And if I will give him my time and my attention, if I will catch what he's saying, then I can establish a principle in my life before I have the problem. And when you have a principle before you have a problem, you have a winning strategy. But whenever you have a problem before you have a principle, then the problem can become emotionally challenged charged. It can become an issue instead of a principle. Once you put a name to it and a face on it, and once you put feelings to it, and you begin to have some emotional connection or emotional investment in a problem, all of a sudden it becomes harder to see clearly what the real remedy is. And it becomes harder to make a decision when you are emotionally invested or emotionally affected by a problem before you have a principle. Temptations should not catch us blindsided. 
You know, our church has a history for the past at least 30 years and, and most likely way before that. I just don't know because I wasn't here to listen to the messages. But I know for the past 30 years, the messages that God gives us in song and, and, and in sermon and, 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 and also in transition time, in exhortation, in prophecies, the messages that God gives us, the prayers that I hear, they prepare me for, for, a, for a week that I'm going to have. They give Give me something to hold on to whenever I leave here so that I know that God is with me. I, I know we have a history here of, of teaching the Word of God as a preemptive strategy. And I'm telling you right now, we're coming to a very emotional time of year. The Christmas season holds for many people wonderful, wonderful Thoughts and for others, very difficult memories. Christmas is a time whenever families come together or families are reminded that they, for some reason, aren't coming together. And many times it's the differences that families have had through the years or the differences that communities have had through the years that looms largest in their mind, the hurts, the pains of the past. Many times holidays are opportunities for people to bury themselves in alcohol and drugs, in division, in arguments. I know you imagine that would never happen, and I know it has never happened in your world or, or anywhere in our community. This is something that happens probably to about, you know, only nine or ten families that must live somewhere, I don't know, up in Silsby or somewhere, Okay. <laughs> Bless their hearts. I'm telling you, hoping that you'll run into them sometime so that you'll have an answer for them because certainly nothing in your world has ever been tense or never been, you know, a place for arguments or a place to, to remember hurts. But Christmas season is a season of family. And we need to remember what God is hoping you know, God has this very big job of, of keeping his family together. And, and we need to embrace principles before we step into problems and before we step into opportunities or temptations. Do you know that the devil wants to divide you from God? Do you know he's actively working today on a strategy to divide your family? Do you know that the devil is trying his best to divide your church, to divide your community, to divide your nation? He's trying to divide generations. Do you know that the devil is doing his best to create something that you would, would, would argue with or, 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 or that would polarize people in different camps and cause them began to, to dislike one another or talk about one another or avoid one another? Do you know the devil is doing his best to destroy what God is trying to build? But here's the truth. The devil cannot divide your family, or you from God. He cannot divide your community, your church. He cannot divide your nation unless he can get somebody to work with him. The devil in the Bible is called the accuser of the brethren. Do you know that the devil will accuse other people to you and accuse you to other people? You know the devil will even accuse you before God? He will go before God and accuse you. He stands there to accuse you before God. That's the picture we have of him standing before God to accuse even the Son of God of not being worthy to enter into heaven. 
because of the sinfulness that he appeared to have, which he only took upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for you and me. Not only will the devil accuse you before God, but do you know that the devil will accuse God to you? He'll say that God doesn't really love you. God doesn't like you. God doesn't care about you. God's not going to do anything about this. God, I mean, what did he say to Eve? God's lying to you. God knows better than that. He's feeding you something that's not true. The devil will do his best to divide husbands and wives and children and parents. He'll do his best to make us sad in a time that God is hoping we'll be glad. The devil loves to destroy. Don't think for one moment that your enemy is asleep. He is not. He's walking about as a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. But resist him steadfast in the faith. There are some things that we need to understand. God wants to prepare us. There are three major truths in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We find that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, who whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And these three truths of, 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 of this scripture in John 3.16, which is a foundation, a cornerstone of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the number one truth there is it tells us about God's love. God loves us. God loves us. He loves us. We should never be moved off of the truth that God so loved. He loves us. And nothing should ever tell us that God doesn't love us. We should never buy into the enemy's accusation that for some reason God doesn't love me. For some reason I'm hurting or I'm in pain or for some reason I'm at a loss or for some reason, you know, God just doesn't love me like he loves other people. That's not true. The second truth about John 3, 16 talks about God's intent, his intent to include everyone. God so loved the world. It didn't say that God so loved the rich people. God so loved the famous. God so loved this race or that race or this group or that group. God so loved the world in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ intends, God has always intended to include whosoever will, lest at any time anyone who has an ear to hear, regardless of your past, regardless of your state and stage and a state of life, regardless of what you are used to, God included you. On the cross of Calvary, your sin was paid for. Yours, your, he included you. He included the person beside you. He included people who like you and people who are not like you and don't like you. He included everyone. Everyone is included. Your parents are included. Your friends are included. Your enemies are included. God so loved the world that he that's the third truth, is that God's love and intent to include everyone is shown by him giving. He gave first, he gave most, and he gives always. He gave his best. Love, inclusion, and giving, those are the foundation points 
of a godly relationship. While at the same time, the spirit of the Antichrist, the God of this world, and our old carnal nature that we were born with, that part of us that the Apostle Paul said we must crucify every day, that part that, that when we want to do good, evil is present with us, as Romans 7 says. That part of our lives that, that, that we're still subject to as long as we are in this mortal body. We are subject to those carnal, fleshly appetites and lust that war against the Holy Spirit in our life. Being subject to these things, we must daily crucify our flesh because the God of this world wants to use us. Instead of to show his love, he wants to use us to hate. Instead of including the God of this world, wants us to exclude. Wants us to separate. Wants us to say, you can't be like me or a part of us. That's the flesh. It's not God. I read nowhere in the word of God that God said, I... I'm, I'm going to save all the people I like and all the people I don't like, I'm going to send to hell. Hello? If that were to happen, let me tell you what category you probably fall in. <laughs> and of course, giving. Giving is a demonstration of love. And if we want to be like God... We are going to have to be givers. Givers of what? Givers of ourselves, our time, our talent, our treasuries. We don't have to be giving. Giving of our heart. Giving of our mercy. Giving of our patience. Giving. Giving. There is a, the, the, giving uh, flies in the face of what the God of this world wants us to do. The God of this world wants us to be selfish. Wants us to be takers. Wants us to be a me first kind of people. Sometime a me only. Me and my family only. Me first. Dog eat dog. Well, this is good preaching. All right, now, the God of this world wants us to not love everybody, to not include everybody, and to be selfish. Boy, we could quit right here, Royce, and say, okay. But you know what? We're going to talk to this a little bit more because I have this bang-up great idea for a sermon title okay <laughs> you see God has given us so much in his word trying his best to use us to keep his family together instead of allowing us to miss the fact that the devil is trying to use us to divide his family the devil wants to use us to divide God wants to use us to gather. Well, Jesus and the apostles often addressed these temptations that are faced by Christians to be less than loving, to be less than inclusive, to be less than giving. They addressed all the way through the New Testament. And this evening, we're going to take a brief look at schisms and heresies. Boy, boy, that, I love, look at this. Schisms, what in the world are schisms and heresies? That's the reason I didn't say it first. What in the world are schisms and heresies? Well, they're both Bible words. Okay? 
The word schism means to take something that is otherwise whole and tear it apart or divide it. That's what it means, schism. To divide, to tear something. To take a whole piece of cloth that's weaved together and to tear it. That's what it means. To divide it. To take one body. To take one family. To take the body of Christ. And to divide it. So that it's no longer one body. So that it's no longer one family. But it's really, when you really look at it, the reality is it's two families. It's three families. Whew. I don't want that, do you? No, I don't want that. Yeah, God doesn't want that for his family either. But that's what the devil wants. In, in my family history, I've got pictures of two of my uncles, great uncles. One on a horse, and the other one in a wagon with shotguns. They both loaded up their families and went down to the creek, down to Doty Branch. Right about half mile from where I was raised. I was raised on a dirt road. You keep going a little farther and take left, you, you cross Doty Branch. Branch, you notice I said. They went down there and met. Set their families on each hill, walked down there, and only one of them came back. The one that didn't come back, that family had to take off and move, and they moved off up into Tennessee. Mr. Perry can tell you about the Hatfields and McCoys. His relative was the first one killed in that Hatfield-McCoy feud. Bill Staten, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah. Uh, it happens. Well, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing about these things. He's writing to the Corinthian church. He's not writing to, to, uh, to, uh, to, to infidels. He's not writing to sinners. He's writing to a bunch of Christians in one church, in one city, that had a whole lot of people, business people, smart people, educated people. Corinth was this big metropolitan area. It was a city that, that was known for its trade. It sat on a very narrow piece of land between two major uh, uh, oceans, if you will. And they would unload at one Instead of sail all the way around, they would unload, take it right across that little uh, isthmus and put it on the other ship and then they could go that way. And so back and forth the trade went through Corinth and Corinth became this great, big, very influential mega trading center of that day. And the apostle Paul uh, it, it established a church and a work there. And then later on that church and that work was filled with all kinds of different divisions. They started out as one church. 1 Corinthians 10, he writes to them, he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 in verse 10, he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and, you, and, and that there be no divisions. That's the Greek word schisms. That there be no schisms among you but that you be perfectly joined together, that you be weaved together like a fine piece of cloth. 
that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. My goodness, how in the world do we ever achieve that? Well, a part of it is taking on the mind of Christ. That you have determined that you're going to be loving. And you're going to do what love demands. That you're going to be inclusive. And you're not going to be divisive. And that you're going to be giving. You're not going to be selfish. You're going to, be, uh, you, you're going to care as much about others as you do about yourself. That, is, that, that, that covers all the law and all the prophets, Jesus said. The Apostle Paul continued to encourage the church at Corinth to guard against these divisions, against these schisms within the body of Christ. Uh, and, and, and he's not talking, as I said, to sinners. He's talking to Christians here. And he continues admonishing them to, to, uh, to be joined together, to, to do what it takes to be a demonstration of the, of, the, of the will and the word and the life and the light and the love of Christ. We are the only hope that God has that some sinner will be saved. Wow. Do you know that you are someone's only hope for heaven? And what you do will influence people. It will. Well, this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to get through to the church at Corinth. He's writing by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't get off the subject. He goes all the way through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Getting even, even down to chapter 11. We read in chapter 11. And he's going to talk to them about the Lord's Supper, about having communion. Now, remember that Jesus offered communion as the last thing that was done in the yearly feast of Passover. That, 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 that you know, it was a feast. It was a lot of food. It was a celebration. It was a wonderful celebration of, of the Lamb of God, you know, taking away the, you know, the sins. I mean, they've been doing this, you know, for, for 1,500 years since Moses. And Jesus comes and he has and he prepares this great supper and they have this great big supper. You know, you've seen pictures of the Lord's Supper. It's a great feast. And at the very end of that feast, Jesus takes bread and he blesses it and breaks it and gives it and he gives the cup. And he said, this is my body. But this is, this is a part of, this communion was a part of a great feast. Okay. And it had been done once each year for about 1,500 years. And so Jesus said, now as often as you do this, you know, the, the, the body and the blood of Christ. But also in, in their understanding this was a celebration of Passover feast. And, uh, you know, I, I have occasion to go to Israel. And uh, there, there's a family, there's a Jewish family in Israel that when they built a house, they built an extra bedroom for, for me and Brenda to stay in. I have occasion to go there and to, to attend Passover there. They aren't Christians, they're Jews. And Passover... Is, is a, the family all comes together and, you know, and, and I mean, well, you know, 
I have to drink three glasses of wine. And boy, I tell you, by the end of that time, I'm glad the bedroom's right there. Because at Passover, there are three cups that you offer and, you, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, the words, and drink ye all of it. <laughs> well, they tend to fill up this preacher's glass pretty good. <laughs> and I tell them, look, uh, this feast is something that's fresh in the minds and the hearts of these people. I mean, they put it all out there, and it's supposed to all be eaten before daylight. Who I have stayed hours eating. And I'm thinking, why do these people cook so much? Because you start complaining about two-thirds of the way through the meal. You start fussing, going, oh, one of the cups you drink leaning. I know why you're leaning, because you have to lean over and just hold on to something. You're just so full, you're just going, uh. Well, you get the picture. Well, they had been doing this in Corinth. Okay? And as we understand, in Corinth, when they came together for this Lord's Supper, and they came together to eat, well, some of the rich and well-to-do people would bring, oh, such wonderful food. Oh, just food that was so, oh, so. But they only brought it for them and their friends. And the poor people were sitting over there eating nothing but, you know, matzo balls. I don't know. What would you eat in Corinth? Greek. I don't know. Greek olives. That's all they had. Okay. They didn't have anything to eat. And there was such a disparity in the church, in this one body, in this one family of God. There was such a disparity. And the apostle Paul heard about what was going on. And, and, and he wanted to say, man, I'm, 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 I'm really glad that you're having the Lord's Supper. But he couldn't bring himself to do it. He's really aggravated. And so he says to them in verse 17 of chapter 11, he says, but the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. Now, how would you like to have that as a letter from the church? Well, the apostle Paul write us, or Jesus write to us by the Holy Ghost and say to us, it sounds like people would be better off if they didn't go to your church. People would be better off if they didn't go to your home group. People would be better off if they didn't go to your prayer group, your Bible study, your Sunday school class. Whoa, come on now. It's where the rubber meets the road. He's writing to real people about a real problem here that they're having in the church. He said, it looks like it is more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions. There's that Greek word schisms again. I hear that there are schisms among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. He'd heard it from Chloe, by the way, if you want to read the whole book, okay? Chloe was, a, you know, she was kind of filling his ear up with a lot of things that went on there in the church. You know, every church got somebody going to go and tell somebody something. Verse 19, but of course, there must be divisions, heresies among you. Heresy is different than a schism. 
I didn't plan on telling you what a heresy was at this moment. I was going to tell you later. But let me go ahead and tell you right now what a heresy is. Okay? These two word divisions are two completely different Greek words. A schism means to take something that, is, that, 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 that should be whole, like my body, and begin to tear, tear an arm off. Put it over there. Okay? To begin to tear something that God designed and desired to be whole and to work together. To tear a part, a, a portions of it off because my arm or my eye says I'm not the ear. And, I'm not, and, and, and you know, if you're not the eyeball, you're nothing. You know? Heresy means, heresy means to make a small group within a large group. To decide you're going to get a small group of people within a large group and protect your own opinions and your own desires. It's opinionated separation of a small group of people within what's intended to be a large group of people. It's as if, you know, all of my fingers decided that they have a different opinion than my head, and so they're going to get over here, and they're going to work against what I'm working, trying to do. They're going to work against what I'm doing, or at least just not work with me. That's heresy. Heresy is neither good nor bad, by the way. Okay? Let's begin with a, a heresy of uh, Protestantism. Protestants committed heresy against Catholics because they were a part of the Catholic group and they had a different opinion and they began to draw together small groups of dissenters. It's built around opinionated dissent. Okay? A smaller group. And as far as the Catholics are concerned, Protestants were heresy. Her, you know, I mean, wars were fought over this. Y'all remember? Wasn't too long ago. You know, IRA. Okay. Um, Christians committed heresy against Judaism. When Christianity first began, the first church, the Jews considered it heresy. What does heresy mean? Heresy means that there is a small group that has formed themselves within the big group and they have a different opinion because they are dissenting from what we believe and they are developing their own beliefs. Okay, you get that? And then they moved from being a heresy within Judaism to becoming their own entity. They were no longer a part of the, of the other group. When that group steps out and is no longer a part of it, they're, they're not classically heresy anymore. Does that make sense? But anything is heresy in the family of God that has a different opinion than God. So you cannot be her, you know, any longer in heresy within, you know, Protestantism stepped out of Catholicism. Okay. And it's no longer heresy. Once it was in, it was in Catholicism, it was heresy. When you step out of Catholicism and you're on your own, you're no longer heresy. Does that make sense? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, they were heresies. Okay? Because they were a small group. They wanted to stay a part of the big group. We want to be a part of Judaism, 
But we just have a different opinion about the resurrection than our leaders have. And so we're collecting a small group of people over here of our close friends so that we can be a, 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 a subgroup with our own opinion, promoting our opinion, but we don't want to lose the support of the big group. We just want to, we want to be a part, but we want to be separate, independent, opinionated subgroup. But I need the big group. See, Protestants didn't need the big group anymore. Christians didn't need the big group anymore in order to have an identity. That's a little different. Are you with me on what a heresy is? Paul said, of course there must be heresies among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. I mean, there, there, there's got to be some group that's going to follow God within any group. But when you're not following God, you'll be recognized as well. And following God constitutes that you love even your enemies and that you include everyone and that you're not selfish. Because those things recognize you as a heresy according to God's family. You're a heresy in God's family. That makes sense? It is heresy against Almighty God to be prejudiced. To be racially prejudiced is a heresy against the word of the living God. Okay. Doesn't matter anything else. That's the truth. Because that's a subgroup, a small group that wants to be a Christian. They want to say we're Christians. They want to say we're, but they happen to hold a dissenting opinion and want to disinclude other races. Some churches are committing heresy because they don't want any poor people in their church. Hello? Some people are committing heresy because they don't want anybody in their church that speaks in tongues. Some people don't want anybody in their church that don't speak in tongues. Some people don't want anybody in their church that's had a prison record. Some people don't want anybody in their church that, uh, come on, hello? It's not your church. <laughs> if you don't want to be a Christian, this is what Joshua said, then serve Baal. Hey, go, go for it. But don't call yourself a Christian and have some dissenting opinion about the Word of God and gather people around you trying to support your dissenting opinion when you don't love and you don't give and you're, you're, you're selfish and you're exclusionary. Don't think you're being Christian. You need to crucify that flesh. Boy, this is good stuff. You can't just get this anywhere, Charles. Yeah. It's just good Bible stuff, okay? It's, uh, I mean, I didn't think this up. The Apostle Paul wrote this, okay? He said, there's got to be some subgroups in the group or else how could anyone be recognized whether they had God's approval or not? You get God's approval when you're like God, Okay? Do you know some people are committing heresy because they promote homosexuality as an alternative, okay lifestyle in the Christian arena? I had a phone call this morning about it. It's not. 
doesn't mean I don't love. doesn't mean we don't include. It doesn't mean that we don't, uh, you know, that, that we don't give. But it does mean this, that it is not the truth. And you can gather all the people around you, but you're going to be in heresy. Boy, there was a, a bombshell, wasn't it? Let's talk about women in the ministry next. No. <laughs> oh, I, sh I should have said women speaking in church and women talking up, you know. <laughs> Some people don't believe in it. Heresy. Hello? Oh, y'all thought I was going the other direction. Come on now, don't get mad at the messenger. I'm stepping on your toes. Your toes shouldn't be right there. Yeah. Verse 20. But when you meet together, he's saying this. I, I can't praise you for what you're doing because when you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Don't you rich people, can't you, you know, if you're not going to bring enough for everybody, can't you just, you know, eat those sumptuous fares at home instead of parading them around people that don't have it and not bring enough for everybody? That's what he's saying. Don't you care about other people? You're just sharing the good stuff with you and your friends and you're letting the poor people sit over there and go hungry? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. I am not going to think good about you. I'm not going to feel good about you. And I'm not going to talk good about you whenever you are just displaying an unloving, uncaring, exclusionary, selfish display. This is supposed to be a Christian thing we're doing. It should be like Christ. Okay, this is the hope of God, and this was where I was headed tonight. Didn't get all the way there. This Christmas season, as you visit your family, as you go and have your dinners and your parties, and you go to your, you know, office parties, and you go, you know, with family and friends, okay? This Christmas, don't be schismatic. Don't withdraw into heresies, into small dissenting subgroups of people who are like you and people who like you and forget about those who aren't and don't. Be loving, be inclusive, and don't be selfish this Christmas. Your family, the future of your family may depend on it. The devil wants to tear us apart. 
God wants to bring us together. But we can only come together around God's truth. Loving, inclusive, and giving.